Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement has come and gone, hailed as the dawn of a new Thatcherite age by most of those you would expect, and condemned as a cynical stage illusion by most of the rest. But in truth, what tends to capture the headlines on the day is what the Chancellor chooses to highlight. Behind that speech, there are a plethora of measures, many hidden in the small print, so we thought it would be useful to reflect on it a few days on. This is where my guest today comes in. He's a professor of economics at the University of the West of England in Bristol, chair of the Post-Keynesian Economic Society, and a member of the Progressive Economy Forum Council. Welcome to the bunker, Joe Mitchell. Thank you very much. Joe, the Times front page hailed the Hunt-Sunak autumn statement with Hunt eases tax burden. The Times online coverage carried the headline, tax burden will be highest since Second World War. So (laughs) which version of the Times is right? The online version is closer to the truth, I think. What's happening here is that inflation is pushing people into higher tax brackets. So people's wages are rising. They are not rising as much as inflation. So actually people's purchasing power is being cut. But because people are getting higher than usual pay rises, five, seven, eight percent, people are getting pushed up into higher tax brackets. More people are now paying top rate tax than they were, even though they're worse off in in purchasing power terms. And that's called fiscal drag. And that fiscal drag effect is much more powerful than the headline tax cuts. So really what Hunt has done is reduce the rate at which taxes are going up or sort of reshuffled who's getting tax rises and, and by how much. So he did something to ameliorate a situation that's already, as it were, getting a lot worse. But presumably, he could have just adjusted the tax brackets by inflation, which would have completely taken care of that, right? Indeed, although I would, I would be cautious about saying that higher taxes is the situation getting worse. I think we will come to discussing the necessity, given the current situation, of higher taxes and the fact that it's unavoidable one way or another. So yes, he could, if he'd wanted to, just have raised all the tax brackets in line with inflation to offset that effect and therefore give a real tax cut across the population alongside the national insurance cut and the full expensing cut. But he's chosen not to do that because he understands, I think, that it's just not possible under the current circumstances to reduce the the share of tax in GDP or what is often called the tax burden. But again, I, I'm uneasy with the term because you know taxes have a very important role to play. So we shouldn't only treat it as a burden. We should also treat it as a as a responsibility, I think. Hunt and Sunak have called this a budget for growth. Is that an accurate description? And I I feel fairly certain that your chairing of the post-Keynesian Economic Society may be a bit of a spoiler as to your response. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Office for Budget Responsibility has penciled in lower growth forecasts than in the previous forecasts, and the previous forecasts were very bad by historical standards growth was a bit better at the end of the pandemic. So we've seen some upward revisions of the historical data. But since 2010, really, we've had very weak growth and productivity in this country. I don't see a convincing story about why we're going to shift to a higher growth trajectory. Mm -hmm. So the future is unknown and the forecasts will be wrong one direction or another. But what I don't see in this budget is something which makes me think, okay, that could do it. That could give us the higher growth that everybody is is promising and talking about. And of course, the Labour Party are also promising higher growth, which may be unwise. 
Mm. You mentioned the OBR. The OBR is more downbeat than it was in March. Now, as I understand it, the OBR is meant to take into account the measures contained in the autumn statement in their forecasts. But we also know from various leaks that there was big stuff still being discussed right up until really the Sunday before the budget. So it seems to me impossible that the OBR will be able to take all of the measures into account. What do you think is going on? It's a little bit opaque, that process. We don't know exactly what the communications are, but we do know that the Chancellor has shown a preview set of forecasts some period before the the statement. I think it's around six weeks before the statement. The time may be not exactly that. And then there is some back and forth while, while the Chancellor provides the OBR with his measures. It may well be that they decided the measures and transmitted them to the OBR two weeks ahead. And then the stuff was just media management, you know, the sort of floating of an inheritance tax cut and then, and then right, removing right. it. But the OBR, I think, is quite good at getting the stuff in. I mean, I think they make sure that they've got the information they need. They produce a before measures forecast. So the forecast, if the Chancellor had changed nothing, and then a post measures forecast where they cost everything and, and try and estimate the effects on growth and so on. But of course, this estimation process is extremely uncertain anyway. So whether or not they've got in the, the full expensing, the national insurance cut or whatever, they say maybe it'll add 0.1%, 0.2% to growth. It affects the forecasts very little, really, and it's highly uncertain anyway. So I, I don't mm. think it's a huge deal, but they, they get the main numbers in there. Forecasts, by their nature, the closer they are, as it were, the easier they are to get within a margin of error. So am I right in thinking that the OBR looking at, for instance, next year and downgrading its growth forecast significantly by more than half, it means that they looked at the measures contained in this autumn statement in this so-called budget for growth and thought, not so much. That's right. The, the near-term forecasts, one year, two year, tend to be reasonably good because we have a reasonable sense of the momentum, that, that where the, the economy is going, unless there's something which really comes as a shock, like the COVID pandemic, which, which throws mm. them completely out of, of kilter. And the longer run forecasts, I think once you get beyond three or four years, it's extremely uncertain. I mean, it's a kind of fiction, really. And we need to think about how those are presented, perhaps in a more cautious way. So yes, the short run forecasts are worse. The OBR has said, you know, to the extent that we can be clear about the next year or two, growth is worse. A lot of that is coming not necessarily from the policy in the current budget, it's it's sort of longer run trends they're looking at, but they are of saying course. these measures are not going to offset that, or to the extent they offset it, it's it's very small, kind of, you know, it's 0.1 percentage points of GDP. This is the kind of numbers you're looking at from the budget. And they're still more upbeat than the Bank of England. What do you think explains this pretty constant discrepancy? I mean, Bank of England tends to be on the pessimistic side. OBR tends to be on the optimistic side. Why is that? Yes, that's interesting. Since the end of the pandemic, uh, particularly, there's been this big divergence in the forecasts of those two very important official institutions, probably the two most important official forecasts we have. And I think there are big questions as to how the public should understand that. If you've got the bank and the the treasury's nominated watchdog, the, the Office for Budget Responsibility, saying very different things, how are they supposed to reconcile that? I mean, I think it's different forecasting techniques, different assumptions going into their forecasting procedures. 
But the forecasting is very opaque. We don't really know how they do it. They have models, but I don't really think they use those models to a great degree. When I say models, I mean computer systems with lots and lots of figures and complicated equations that sort of churn things out. I think they sort of sit down and they say, what do, you, what do we think? What does the IMF say? What are JP Morgan saying? What's our gut mm. feeling? Mm. And they kind of draw numbers in and then they sort of you know, reverse engineer the modeling. I don't know why exactly the bank are more pessimistic, perhaps because they're watching the sort of inflation side more closely. So they're watching the things that could come along, geopolitical risks, climate shocks, you know, the pandemic effects are still kind of finally filtering out. It may be that mm. that gives them a kind of pessimistic view, but that's that's very speculative. I genuinely don't know what the difference is. Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting though. Now, every independent assessment I've seen says that public services are going to take a battering from this statement. Government says that public spending is going up in real terms. How can both those things be right? They're not both right. Government spending is not forecast to go up in real terms across the board as a result of the previous budget and the current statement. Because inflation has gone up, you need to have compensating increases in in public spending and on Mm. unprotected areas. So that's outside of things like health and and defense and so on. So we're talking local government, um, the courts and so on. We're looking at something like 15% real terms cuts to the end of the forecast. That's the figure in the Resolution Foundation assessment of the, the budget. So the claim that across the board, government spending is going up in real terms is not true. This is an austerity budget. Um, several people have, have used this word. Uh, I think the Institute for Fiscal Studies said we're looking at real terms cuts, which are comparable in size to the kinds of cuts that we saw under Osborne. Hmm. Is the preference for private sector growth Quite strange, given the political situation, Joe. It seems to me that ideology aside, you can stimulate growth much more instantly with public money, right? Because the capital budget is completely within your control. And still, the capital budget has seen a real terms cut at exactly a political point where the government, you would think, would want really instant results and instead they're putting out incentives for private business to invest, which really most of them won't come to fruition for several years. So is that just a miscalculation or is there something else behind it? I think you're right that public investment spending is directly under the control. So if the if the government decides to raise public investment by one percentage point of GDP, for example, then that you know, all, all else equals should happen. Whereas what we've seen here is that the full expensing is the big headline measure, the new regulation, which allows companies to offset against their taxable profits, all of their investment in plant and machinery. And the hope there is that yeah. that will stimulate increased plant and machinery investment. And this is, is, is good for growth. I should say for listeners, that this is a policy that is already in place until 2026. And what's included in the autumn statement is an extension of this policy beyond 2026 and sort of making it more 
permanent and universal. So it's exactly the sort of thing I was talking about, that it seems to get them no benefit straight away. Indeed. I mean, what was expected with that temporary um, full expensing was that a lot of spending that was going to happen anyway would be brought forward for tax purposes. Mm. Mm. That will get pushed further back. So in a sense, you might even have a drag uh, on on spending (laughs) immediately, although a lot of it will be on the accounting side rather than the real spending. So I, I think you're probably right that the effects of that expensing change are uncertain. They may have a positive effect on growth over a medium term. But if you want to generate short run higher growth, then you can do it through government spending, through demand measures, investment or government consumption. I think one reason they may not be doing that is because there is a sense that things are tight in terms of inflation and any real higher spending now in short run could you know make inflation go up again or, or slow the, the pace at which it's coming down. Of course, Sunak adopted inflation as a target for his government. And that in itself mm. makes very little sense because the Bank of England has a legal remit. The inflation target is 2%. For the prime minister to then say, well, myself and the treasury are going to target inflation of 5%. Is incoherent, but I think there isn't. There is a real tension at the moment between real demand stimulus, you know, government spending to get things moving and, and try and get growth, and what we call the supply side, the the fact that production is constrained, the labour market is relatively tight, we've mm. got global mm. disruptions. So I think that could be a calculation about uh, why they haven't really pushed for a sort of short run stimulus to, to growth. There was also a lot of talk, I say that, well, in my geekosphere, but our listeners are geeks, about the sort of the Thatcherite principle of not picking winners and losers. We we heard a lot about that and how this might become an election dividing line, especially when it comes to the the sort of green spending that Labour has announced. Can you explain what that is and how it expresses itself in economic terms? Yes, the argument goes that in the 1960s and 70s, the the British government picked a whole sequence of firms and industries which it gave preferential treatment to, it gave subsidies, it gave tax breaks, it tried to stimulate investment. And the conventional wisdom, which I really think needs challenging, is that what they did was generate a whole bunch of white elephant industries, things that were very, very costly, very inefficient, didn't generate dynamism, cost the taxpayer a lot of money, and that this proves that the government mustn't do what we call industrial strategy. The government mustn't intervene in deciding which sectors of the economy should should be pushed to grow, which sectors of the economy should be favoured for technological advancements and so on. And that this is then transposed to the current story about the green transition. And what we do know, I think, without doubt, is that we absolutely need government action to to push the investment we need for Mm. clean technology, for, for green energy, and so on. So it's being used as an argument against this green investment push. And I think there are two main problems with it. Firstly, it's not clear that the case is well made about the 60s and 70s. There are examples of Concord, for example, hugely expensive, lots of government money went into it, did actually turn a profit, but only a very small profit. It never recouped the um, investment costs over the long run. But it did, you know, give the seed of Airbus, which is now a big profit-making industry. There was technological change as a result of it, even that high-profile case. And if you look at lots of the other examples that people say, these are the mistakes they made, 
over the long run, there actually is technological dynamism. There, there is a sort of virtuous spiral coming out of a lot of this stuff. So it's quite hard to really pick true cases of, of losers. And then when you transpose it to the current case of the, the green transition, uh, it's just not clear that the correspondence makes sense. You know, picking a car industry in the 60s to, to favor is not the same as saying, okay, we're going to give big subsidies to wind power investment and solar investment and, and this kind of thing. So I think we actually really need to, to be ready to push against this argument because I think you're right that it's coming. It's going to be a big part of the election and it's going to be a, an attack on the next government if they do try and do the green investment that's needed. What about the treatment of people with disabilities? I, I heard one expert suggest that the new punitive regime for people who refuse to engage with sort of back-to-work scheme after 18 months, it will only ever affect a tiny, small number of thousands of people, which in terms of the, the DWP budget is a, is a rounding error. So, so why include it? What is the signal there? My best guess is that this is really a signal for a certain section of the population who will tend to vote conservative and like the idea of being hard on, on benefit claimants. And so it's a sort of election-based policy. The, the economic rationale for it, it is not there. I think it's just, it's cruel. As you say, the numbers are very, very small. Of course, it's important that people are in work and are helped back into work and that work provides dignity. I, I agree with all of the the justification which has been given, mm. but the policy doesn't match that justification. If you want to help people mm. back into work, I think the evidence is fairly clear that actually good income support, allowing them to take risks if they know, you know, they can try a job. If it doesn't work out, they lose the job. They don't lose their benefits. If they want to start a business and they lose a bit of money, then the, there's a sort of safety net there. Many of these people, people with long-term sickness and so on, are so close to the edge financially that they are you know, living hand-to-mouth, living day-to-day, -day, squeezing them harder is absolutely not going to raise productivity. It's not going to raise, you know, meaningfully the size of the workforce in a good way. You might force some people to do some work that they um, are not really able to do in the short run mm. for, for poor pay and so on. So I, I think it's, it's a political choice. And yet, Joe, this is something that keeps coming back in the shape of various policies that there is this sort of magical threshold below which people are motivated by stick and above which people are motivated by carrot. You know, it's always we mustn't tax the richest because they'll just up and leave. But if we do sanctions on the poorest, it will encourage them to sort of go out and make more money. You know, it's very easy to dismiss that. I'm one of the people who dismiss it. But I wonder, is there any economic evidence, actually, that the wealthier sort of percentile of society is motivated more by carrot and the least wealthy are motivated more by stick. In those simplistic terms, I don't think there is any evidence. I mean, there's lots of studies which look at the marginal effects of uh, affecting benefit payments, the marginal effects of taxation on, on upper incomes. And the evidence isn't always crystal clear. There's usually a little bit of each effect uh, in each case. But I think the bigger picture which comes out of that literature is that strong social safety nets and you know, less of a stick in, at the bottom end of the people who are you know, vulnerable and, and struggling over the long run produces better outcomes, produces mm. healthier societies, happier societies, and, and ultimately those are societies which you know, are better able to work and engage and be part of uh, the labor force. And 
given current very high inequality in wealth and income, we're very, very far from the point where the sticks do harm uh, at the upper end. You know, there, there are cases historically, maybe in the 60s and 70s, where wages were growing very rapidly and they were eating into profits, and that probably did mm. eat into investment. At the moment, a, a huge amount of money which is recorded as profit, I think, is really a kind of rent. It's, it's money which is accruing to owners of capital. A lot of it moves offshore and so on. And the evidence suggests that if you clamp down on that, you're going to have very, very little effect on the things we care about, which is capital investment and dynamism and productivity and so on. Tell me, Joe, were there other things sort of in the small print of the budget that should have got more attention that in your view signal important economic themes? I, mean, I think that the big theme in the background here was one we touched on right at the beginning, which is that the, the tax share is going to go up, forecast to be around 38% of GDP by the end of the forecast period. And that's going to be about the highest in 80 years if it happens. And the drivers of this are an aging population, a sick population, you've got long, long-term effects as a result of COVID, the results mm. of Brexit, which are becoming more clear economically, the long-run effects of austerity, um, which I think are now really starting to show up in terms of, of labor force and productivity and, and interacting with age and, and, and sickness and so on. And then we've got the climate crisis. We've got the, the, the likelihood that we're going to see further shocks uh, of, the, of mm. the kinds mm. that we saw at the end of the pandemic, the invasion uh, of Ukraine and the geopolitical tensions which we see at the moment, all of that feeds into, a, I think, a very grim outlook, really. Low growth, yeah. uh, rising dependent population. There's no way around it. If we want the government services and transport system and schools and so on to carry on functioning, even at their current degraded level, tax is going to have to go up. People are effectively poorer. You know, As a society, we've got poorer. And, and over this parliament real incomes have fallen. And that's the first time you know, almost in recorded history that, that that happens. So I think that's the big picture really coming out of this. It's just, it's just how grim economically things are. So, you know, telling people that they can have tax cuts, telling them that they can have better government services with, without paying more, that we can magically be, you know, two and a half percent growth, the top of the G7, that's, you know, the claim coming from the Labour Party. None of this is honest. And I think it would be very helpful if, if politically and electorally very difficult if politicians were to start being honest about just how difficult the choices we face are and the kind of trade-offs we're looking at. Yeah, it's important to say that the tax share, although historically high for the UK, is not fantastically high when you look at international comparators of sort of similar developed Western nations, right? Absolutely right. I should have I should have said that because I always try and say that when I make this point is that although it's historically high for the UK, it's not particularly high internationally. And if you look at other countries with higher tax shares, many of them grow faster, many of them have you know better GDP growth and so on. So people are getting richer quicker. There's not this clear trade-off that some people say, you know, higher tax leads to lower growth and vice versa. That that just doesn't show up in the in the data. Yeah, I, I often get the sense increasingly actually over the last few years that the the budgets are completely backwards, that the government starts with a sense of this is how much we have, what shall we spend it on, as if it were pocket money, instead of the discussion being led by what is it that we want the state to do. How much will that cost and how do we fund it? Which would seem to me the healthier way to budget for a nation rather than starting from 
oh, look, here's a tenner I found. Do I spend it on health or do I spend it on education? Absolutely right. And I think part of the problem here is the way that the Office for Budget Responsibility forecasts interact with the government's fiscal rule. So the government has this Mm. fiscal rule that debt must be falling five years uh, from now as a share of GDP. So when we say the government has found £10 down the back of the sofa, it really doesn't mean that it's actually found £10. (laughs) What it means is that the highly uncertain Office for Budget Responsibility forecast shows that debt to GDP will be falling by £10 in five years time, and therefore you can get away with, with spending it. It's, it's found 10 fictional pounds in the future. Exactly. So you're gaming a, a fictional future. And it's always gamed recently towards tax cuts rather than government spending. So one thing I would argue for would be losing that fiscal rule. I'm not arguing against fiscal rules in general, but that particular fiscal rule, which has now just become the sort of the central game of budgets. As you say, you work backwards from the, the forecasts relative to that rule, and then you you know you find something electorally convenient based on that imaginary £10 down the back of the sofa. So I would argue for losing that fiscal rule altogether. Yes. And uh, and I think also not enough attention is being paid to private debt, which is now at levels that it was just before the last global financial crisis. So ignore that at our peril, I think. Joe, I want to wrap this up by asking you to step a little bit outside your economics comfort zone and into the more political aspects of the budget. Some have suggested that the autumn statement signals politically an early election. Do you think it signals that economically as well? I am particularly thinking of the the dire downward revision to growth figures for the next year and the year after. I mean, I can't see them wanting to go to voters on the back of a of a 0.7% annual growth. Will they? What do you think? All the options look bad for them, don't they? They either <laughs> wait a little bit longer and then you're further into the pain which has been predicted. I suppose the advantage of one more budget is they could do something like inheritance tax cut, which has been floated. One theory is that the, this sort of pre-autumn statement discussion was a way of testing the waters for it, and they might want to do it uh, in the spring. Of course, mm. that depends on what the Office for Budget Responsibility pull out of the hat in terms of whether there's £10 down the back of the sofa or not. I'm sure they'll find something in, in 2027. They might do, or they, you know, something, the growth forecasts might be worse, and therefore the debt's yeah. much higher, and, and they have the opposite problem. So I think it's a gamble. You know, they could gamble that they can do a few more giveaways in the spring and actually the forecasts improve a little bit and then they can tell a story about how they've turned the turned the corner and this was the big turning point. My gut feeling is they probably will do that, but my gut feeling is also that it won't work for them because I think probably the, the forecasts aren't going to improve much. There isn't going to be much more money to spend, so probably they're not going to be able to save very much more in the spring other than we've done mm. what we could. Uh, but you know, even six months is a long time at this point. I'm sure I'm going to be wrong about that. Yeah. Finally, finally, finally... What do you think is the biggest thing that was not in the budget, as it were, the the biggest missed opportunity, something you were really hoping for and didn't materialise? Yeah, so what I would like to have seen in this budget is an increase in public investment, in in green investment. Because even though there may be a very small increase in private investment as a result of full expensing, it's going to be offset 
by the fall in public investment, according to the Office for Budget Responsibility, which will be down to 1.8% of GDP by the end of the forecast period. Lowest in the G7, low historically, it needs to be much higher. Uh, So that's the big missed opportunity, I think. But it's not one that we would have expected really from Hunt at this stage. Professor Joe Mitchell, thank you for acting as our machete against the economic thicket. Thanks very much for having me. Remember, if you get value from our work, you should support our work. And you can do so from as little as £3 a month on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with these rather seasonal words from Winston Churchill. The art of taxation consists in so plucking the goose as to obtain the largest possible amount of feathers with the smallest possible amount of hissing. This is Alexandre in the bunker saying over and out. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andreu. The producer was Liam Tate and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.